Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight, we're with Dan, Nate, talking about embodied theology. Janelle, we have some announcements before we get going. First one is New Story Festival. Austin, March 29 through 31. That's right. We're going to have a booth. It's, yep. it's kind of like a wild goose festival, but it's urban, and it's the inaugural version. And we're going to have swag that is first time reveal at New Story. And we're going to be talking about the key to peace or shalom, whichever word you like better. Yeah. And then after that, we have Altruist coming up on May 4th. That's Saturday, May the 4th. That's 9.30 or 10.30, I think. 10.30 a.m. in the morning till 3.30 p.m. Didn't we just do this today? We just talked about this okay, today. Okay, so you should know the yeah. times. I should know the times. <laughs> and we actually have a skeletal outline. We have Seedstock Brewery in the house. Six prominent faith leaders from the Mile High City. And Very cool people. Yeah. You we, really you don't actually, want to miss it. Heard, I think you've heard all of them except for one on the podcast. And that'll be the secret. And if any of you want to fly in and come to it, you reach out to us because we've got a couple spare bedrooms. So, Yep. That information is on the website, brewtheology.org. Also, follow us on the Twitter, the Twitter, brew underscore theology, Facebook and Instagram at brewtheology. Is that it? I think so. Cool. All right. You guys ready to brew? What are we drinking tonight? I'm drinking a, an unpronounceable Scotch Ardbeg. I mean, that's you know, that's my pronunciation. And Oa, which is a series on Netflix, so I don't know how it relates to this Scotch. I'm the drinking O-A? the same Scotch. A N O A. And that was Nate, by the way. Nate brought the Scotch, and we've also got some beer, local beer from Great Divide. I got Breckenridge Vanilla Porter. I have a great divide, modern IPA, whatever that means. It's very good. Heyday modern IPA. And someone's trying to open a Death by Disco from left hand. <laughs> Speaking of, Longmont, they have a chapter up there. We have 10 chapters across the country. Longmont just started a couple months ago. And, and I just got an email from New Zealand. That would be awesome. That would be rad. And if we could do a trip there and an event there, even better. <laughs> Beer Camp New Zealand. It's like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> there are no major predators in New Zealand, so you'd be fine. Seriously. Have you seen the animals that are there? They're all squishy. <laughs> but speaking of other countries, not just New Zealand, uh, we've got a friend, and Janelle and Dan have met this friend of mine. His name is Raf Zayas. Oh, yeah? He's yeah. in Estonia. He is in Estonia. And he has listened to every single podcast. One hundred and what, 15 or 14 episodes, that something so like this. That is amazing. It is. He's he, the goat. He told me that today. We need to send him a free t-shirt. What's his name? His name's Raph. Raphael. And I, what's funny about it is that I said, dude, like I haven't even listened to all the episodes and Janelle <gasps> hasn't even listened to half of them. <laughs> no, I haven't. Wow. But Dan, Dan's with you, Raph. He's listened to every single podcast. Every single one. Raph, even I would like to apologize ones. for the terrible conversation that I had with Paul <laughs> the last time I was on the podcast. Thank you for making it through that. Raf and I met in New Jersey. Uh, if you want to actually look at his work in Estonia, it's uh, go to Raf Zayas, R-A-F-Z-A-Y-A-S.com. It's a foundation where uh, he exists to enhance lives of individuals in the Baltic world by connecting volunteer, financial, and teaching resources to nonprofit organizations. So Raf's got uh, quite a bit of experience, not only in pastoral work, but also uh, in the corporate world. So he's mixing those together, trying to help up nonprofits and churches in that area. His story is really rad too. And I, I don't want to speak about it and give, you know, I can't really do justice to it. So go to the website, look at the video. The dude is legit. We should, uh, we should just interview him. Yes, we should. 
patient, just for the fact that, that I've known him for so long and he's listened to every podcast. Yeah, Ralph, That's awesome. we're invited. We're formally inviting you to join us on the podcast. We'll figure out the technical details, Skype or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Let's do it. Okay. Dan wrote the content for tonight. Embodied theology. Dan. Dan, what? it was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. That's true. Oh, really? She told me that today. Earlier. It was a great table. You weren't around, so she wasn't blowing smoke up. Cool. <laughs> well, a little background on why I chose this. Um, last year, I read uh, a, as many books as I could. And I kind of, when I found out that I was going to write some material for for us this year, I wanted to kind of find the the common thread through all those books. And it was very difficult because they were not writing about the same thing. Um, they, they were all women authors. But, Is that something too that you've been doing like the past year? Only female authors? Yeah. So I did that last year and yeah, the book that I'm reading now is also a woman. So, but yeah, I, I found that whether they intentionally did so or not, they were bringing me back to my body, which is helpful for me. Cause I'm a, for those Enneagram nerds, I'm an Enneagram five. So I'm a floating head. <laughs> it's <laughs> so it was really, it was good to, um, read these books and um, I mean, even Diana Butler Bass's Grounded is exactly about that um, from a theological kind of point of view of grounding Christianity and, and having it um, come back to the earth. That was very helpful. Um, but yeah, when, when I'm talking about embodiment, it's this idea that our thoughts and feelings, maybe things that we've traditionally attributed to or cerebrally to our head, um, actually is, is grounded or, um, it's in the body and depending on where you get your definition from, whether it's psychology or, or sociology, you might get a slightly different, um, definition, but that's kind of what I was talking about. You write this in contrast to sort of a way in which a lot of us grew up and specifically you as well. Can you talk about just that process of, how you came to the realization that this is an important topic in contrast to how a lot of us grew up. So in the notes, I, I talk about how, um, at least in my Christian upbringing, the body, at least from the pulpit, um, maybe at home things were a little different, but from the pulpit, the body was rarely talked about in a positive way. It was always an obstacle to genuine spirituality. It was something to overcome. It was something to resist. Um, for women, it was something to be ashamed of. Uh, for men, it was something to repress. Well, it's it to me, it's been interesting how I didn't even know all of those things like consciously until I started looking at embodiment and going, wait a second, I don't understand what they're talking about because it's not it's not natural for me to be embodied mm -hmm. because of those messages. Yeah. And what's interesting is that as I, this was a hard topic for me to write about because I didn't know which way to direct it. I didn't want to go too specific into like one field because I wanted people to talk about their experience. And, um, but I, but I read so much about like, at least in the realm of psychology that a lot of uh, therapists and psychologists now are using these embodiment practices quite a bit with their patients or with their clients and um, I found that to be interesting. So if somebody comes in and they have maybe anxiety problems, which is pretty prolific at the moment, 
you know, they try to ground them in their body. So they might have some breath exercise. They might tell them to exercise or walk or, you know, dance or to get back into their body. And, um, yeah, I thought it was a timely topic. So I was curious around the table and we didn't really do intros, but, uh, we don't have to, I think this would be kind of interesting. Like we're, are you somebody who lives in your head? Are you somebody who understands the body? Do you feel like you do have those out of body experiences? Just, just not where you are right, right now today, but going back, looking at your life from when you were a kid, adolescent, young adult, just that whole process of growing up. So as a kid, I was super embodied in the sense that I was always playing and outside and running and just like lived in my body, in my moving body. And probably as I got into probably middle school is where it really started to hit, not only because you're going through changes, but in I started understanding the messages of the church about well, and my church didn't dance. And so you, you start having school dances and I'm not supposed to go. I'm not supposed to move that way. Um, and modesty starts to come in. And then I think especially for our generation, which got left off the list. So we'll leave it at that. But apologetics were really big. And so as I kind of grew through high school and college, like having it all in my head was what was important. It wasn't about... Even even if you think about it, like answering the call, that was very head, it was a very head thing. It was very much about just like hearing God's movement and saying yes, and it didn't have anything to do with your whole person. It was just like that aspect of yourself in some ways. So the idea of discerning God's will is... Mental. It's very bizarre for people. Mm-hmm. And they get confused. Is this God's will? And, and because we we just... We pray, we pray in our heads, whereas it's funny because having Pam, you know, the past couple of weeks on the podcast and she talked about how, you know, study is this form of worship, which is, Mm -hmm. well, that's weird. I thought study is study because we we compartmentalize everything. Yeah, because you're not, if you study to do your sermon, that doesn't count as devotionals, right? Yeah. I, uh, I had a similar experience as Janelle in terms of... I didn't realize this until much later, of course, but looking back on it, I can see played a lot of sports and my dad spent a lot of time with me outside, you know, doing physical things and, and helping me become comfortable. Um, let's say like being effective as an agent in certain ways physically. Right. And then at the same time, he was a, a, a very controlling person and um, I learned not to express certain kinds of emotions around him, especially when he was causing them, right? So, um, so acting angry or sad or, or rejecting some mandate that had come down was not a good idea. So um, I slowly learned to either pretend like I wasn't having certain emotions, which at the time I thought was an intellectual experience, but now I recognize as a bodily experience, right? Like if you're feeling your heart clench and your your gut tense up and, and those things are very physical sensations, right? Like an emotion begins in the body somewhere. So when you, and I'm also an Enneagram five, so I have a, a desire 
to pretend like intellectual systems are better anyway. So it's like, okay, so I can just pretend like this emotion isn't happening and, and just move on with my life. So now I'm in therapy. <laughs> That's good. I think the other, the other thing that just popped into my head was one of the things I saw my particular brand of church do was um, really minimize the physical needs of their pastors. So it was okay for pastors to struggle to eat. And it was okay for pastors to to not have enough money for the electric bill or to not have enough money to live in a safe environment and to not have enough money for food for their kids. And um, in this context, that becomes even more sinful than I already thought it was. Because we, we're calling, we're answering the call, we're obedient. But if you have to starve for Jesus, if you have to sacrifice for him, it's even a higher thing. No, it means you're saying that we don't matter and that, that our bodies don't matter. I have a question for you guys, if, uh, if you don't mind. I mean, you talked about how you were looking for the common thread through these books that you had been reading. But I think probably the reason you were able to see that thread is because you had begun to notice in your own life that you wanted to embody more. And so I just wonder, like, for you guys, did you have a process of realizing that, you know, a, a mental set of beliefs was not what you really wanted out of your religious practice? So I'll give a quick rundown of, of, of a little bit of my story. And um, when I really started getting into theology, which is coincidentally at the same time that I got, I wanted to own my faith, you know, and not just uh, live according to what I had been taught, which happened end of high school, beginning of college, which is very common, at least in the West. And um, what I found was uh, Calvinism and what I liked about Calvinism was it's perceived, my perception of it was that it was mentally rigorous. You know, they, they were, they could give me all the answers and it fit very well with my personality. And I also was going to school for engineering. So everything was in my head and it was great. And then I think I, maybe before my mind, uh, if we can kind of make that dualism for a second, because the whole point of this is to get rid of the dualism, but maybe my my conscious mind um, didn't realize that it was hungry for something more. And maybe my body knew first. And I think I started developing anxiety, and I I haven't really talked about this much, but I, I think I think depression is probably a good good word for it while I was in college. There was some other stuff going on in my life at the same time. And because of that, I, I went to seek out kind of more embodied Christian practice, and I found contemplation. So it was through Thomas Keating, who passed last year, that I learned centering prayer. Um, I ran into Richard Rohr's work. So it was like through that um, contemplation, and then through there, it was like the gateway drug to a little bit of Buddhist um practice 
that I started paying attention more to my body. And I think that's what led me to finally last year. I'm like, I'm going to read some books. And the first book that I picked up was Grounded by Diana Butler Bass. So did you, did you start to unwind your, your way of practicing or did you, do you feel like you've augmented your way of practicing with a more body, um, integrated approach? Ooh, I think it's both. Um, in some senses, if I'm understanding what you're, what you're asking correctly. Um, so I grew up charismatic, so it was actually very bodily, at least in the, the experience of the church was very dynamic, very bodily. You know, people were screaming, running around. Um, you know, if you felt like worshiping or praising God in some way and bodily way, it was completely allowed. And, um, but the rhetoric, once it came to the preaching, it went straight to the headspace of like, you need to have correct beliefs and all this other stuff. Um, so maybe there was that bit of alienation or something, but so in, in some, in, in a weird way, I've come back to my body, but in a different way. So there's a, a bit of an unraveling and maybe perhaps an aug- augmentation. I, I don't know how to put it into words. So Dan, I just want you to know that this topic, like I've had multiple experiences with your topic of thinking things I have never thought before. And I'm not kidding. So thank you for making us think about this. Um, it's very strange because as I started to become more progressive, I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what emergent meant, but I had my church come and do a labyrinth and did more hands-on prayer activities. Um, but if I'm being honest, like I don't think that it was affecting me. My, my embodiment all that much. Um, the thought that I just have was that um, when I play piano, it's not a hand experiment, experiment. It's my whole body, and I don't do it anymore, and I haven't for a long time. And part of that is connected to the church um, and I don't know how to fix it, but I think that music is one of the places where I feel most embodied, but I don't have any idea how to do it anymore because it feels scary and it's not productive. It doesn't make money. It, it doesn't do anything. And in my, my brain part of me, that's very wasteful to like lose an afternoon playing piano that no one's going to hear and doesn't do anything. So so I'm going to rabbit trail hold this just to go out this. I think we do a disservice in the Western church, both to teens um, and also to adults. And I, and I don't want to go off on like why youth ministry is bad, but I go for it. No, I know. Cause I'm actually going to affirm it right now as somebody who spent most of his uh, years in ministry as a youth pastor and then having gone up in a youth group, and then when I was in uh, college, my first ministry was urban ministry. I, f- I feel like I um, I was able to stay in that world because I was I was I was literally I mean as a college as a college student you're really st- you're kind of a teenager yeah. still in a way. So as you start your ministry career at continually working in youth ministry, um, you don't have that separation. How many students leave youth ministry, try adult church, and then they never go back? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- so th- there's where there's that disconnect between 
teens and adults where we can have a beef with youth ministry. But I think the problem is, and we do the disservice. You're talking about playing piano and things that are, oh, there's you. You'd even mention like, what good would that do? It doesn't really yeah. serve serve anybody. There's no you know financial monetary value to it. But you can say the same thing about what youth pastors do with teenagers and how they have them experience living these missional lives. Going, I mean, youth ministry is probably the most intense of all ministries in the church because it it is fully holistic. It's integrated. And um, when I say worship in quotes, I mean that standard standard worship in the church. But to them, like it's it's about play, it's about hands on stuff, it's about questions, it's everything. So I think I I did. Yeah. Um, I have the rare opportunity, my young adult years of having been a youth pastor. And then when we live in a foreign country, you know, then you're seeing people live out their faith in a very embodied way because their mm-hmm. life, everything they're, they're walking to the store, they don't have vehicles, and so. Um, as an adult in the Western Church, um, somehow, some way, we get them to check in and check out, potentially even check their brain at the door, listen to somebody else with their brain, sing some songs, and walk out. So there's really nothing embodied, for the most part, with Western Christianity how it's practiced. I want to, in defense of Western Christianity, um, I find that churches that follow some form of liturgy to be very helpful. Um, even if it's most mostly verbal, just speaking certain things to do it communally, to do it together, um, is, is awesome. I think it's, it's a lot better than sitting down the whole time and not participating like the call and response that Paul talks about the body of Christ Mm -hmm. and that body is not your body. It's our body, Mm -hmm. but we forget about that often. So yeah. The, so what, what other kind of things would you say? So the, the liturgy would be one in the other ways. I don't want to knock adult adult church altogether too, okay. uh, but I, I think there's a lot that they can learn from youth ministries and children's ministries too. As I've been exploring um, orthodoxy a little bit and learning more about Catholicism as well along the way, I find a really interesting um, and, you know, like just as a, another way of, of looking at this, right? Um, without trying to say this is good or that's bad, um, that a lot of what Luther and, and Calvin did was strip out senses from the experience of going to church on Sunday. So you don't, you're not seeing the icons. I mean, if you grew up in a charismatic church, then you had a more embodied experience than I did. We sang songs, but the church building itself, while it's supposed to be beautiful, is very plain and very austere. Plain. And um, the songs are—I don't want to say they're boring, but they're—they're—they're they're, they're of a certain type, right? They're—they're—they're going to be—they're going to be fairly. It's not going to challenge a lot of people, right? In terms of, <laughs> like, it's not going to be an assault on the senses, right? And the. Um, so you you remove the the sight and the smell. There's no incense anymore. Um, you confine it to what you can hear and see, and a large part of the evangelical liturgy is listening to the pastor talk. So you know the homily in a Catholic or an Orthodox service is like five or ten minutes maximum, yeah. versus the twenty-five to forty-five minutes you might get listening to another pastor talk and you're constantly getting up, you're sitting down, you're, um, you're kneeling, you're, you're made aware of your body during. And you eat too, you know, with with the communion or Eucharist every Sunday, 
And, uh, I just thought of this. This sounds like a clever evangelical pastor uh, quip, but um, when you mentioned the Orthodox Church, as far as I, I know, the Orthodox Church and, and the Catholic Church still have um, crucifixes, and whereas the Protestant Church just has a cross, it's literally disembodied. Yeah. Mm. Wrong. Well, and even communicated that there's something weird about it being embodied. Like if it's a crucifix, it's not quite right because you're celebrating Jesus's body, but not the resurrection. We think about mm. what we prioritize too. We don't prioritize the incarnation. Christmas is kind of fluff and we love little baby Jesus, but ultimately it's about Easter, the resurrection, even within Catholicism. So it could be about Good Friday, but why is it about Good Friday and then, e and then Easter, Resurrection Day for Protestants? Is because I think we like the afterlife, going back to the disembodied state. Whereas if you go to Christmas, that's all about the incarnation. So then you have to focus on the actual life of this baby who grew up, who probably had wet dreams, who then had crushes, and then he, had, he struggled like every other man does too. Which, mm -hmm. whereas when we grew up, we were like, oh no, like... I'm just trying to, you know, that was the shame of the male body of like, how many times did you masturbate today? And like, but the fact that, no, the fact that, that, that Jesus was a young man who clearly these, these were, this was a part of his life. We skip all that because we want to get to the, the Christ that, that somehow, you know, well, he, he rocked the grave and so he can you. And the you're... grave, but his new body is not physical like ours in the same way. So he was present and he appeared to them, but he could walk through walls and presumably he wasn't in pain or he wasn't sensing things the same way. And so it's almost like we glorify this neutralized body, even though it was powerful enough to come back, Yeah, but it's no longer our body. Yeah. And at least Catholics, like at least they go through the crucifixion, the brutality of that. Yeah. Protestants really just jump to Easter. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I want to. I want to say there's a little bit of tension within the scriptures, even in the New Testament, about bodies and stuff. Yeah. Right. Because on one hand, you have Paul saying, at, at times, Paul sounds like a Gnostic. He's like, oh, you know, things of the flesh, whatever. But it's really the spirit that matters, and your treasures in heaven, and all this other stuff. And then a book like uh, Revelation will be like, well, you know, God's going to bring His kingdom to earth. <laughs> yeah. I'm also thinking about how, like, to call back to Pam, one of the things she said at her talk was when somebody asks, what do you believe? You know, everybody's kind of like, what do you mean? We don't believe things, we do things, right? Okay, so to connect that to the way that I experienced the church was there wasn't much emphasis on the Judaism there's a lot of emphasis on the New Testament and the New Testament, um, and in particular, theological elements of the New Testament, right? So um, there's a lot more stories about how people embodied their faith in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. The New Testament is essentially about Christ, and rather than focusing on how he embodied what Christianity is, we focus on like an abstraction, what does it mean? How do we achieve salvation? How do we assure our place in heaven in, in a mansion of whatever, right? So I think like there's, there's, there's just a lot of patterns and ways to see disembodiment in, um, 
in in certain kinds of practices, even if they wouldn't come out and say, we believe in a disembodied spirituality. It's it's odd because when you look at the parables, which is Jesus' main form, main way of of communicating, at least in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, it's all very mundane and and earthy. You know, a woman loses her coin, she finds it, she throws a party. You know, a father loses a son, he comes back, he throws a party. A guy loses a sheep, he foolishly goes, chases after the one and leaves the other hundred or 99. And then, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's very day-to-day things. And even his miracles, you know, he's like getting his hands dirty, spitting at it, putting people's eyes and making them see. Touching like, the unclean. Touching the unclean. Sitting with women, like doing things that are putting his body in spaces to stand up for those that are facing oppression. Yeah, and even when he's, when, when the, the leaders kind of point that out that, Hey, you can't be working on the Sabbath. He's like, okay. <laughs> you know, does it care? This is the work. Yeah, this is the work. And, and there's not as much embodiment in the new Testament as a whole because, well, maybe there is, but we just can't sense it as well because we yeah. don't know the drama that the Corinthians were going through you know, Paul writes a letter, it's about an embodied problem. It's not an abstract set of principles. He's like, look, you're having these real problems in the real world. Here's some help for you. Here's how to embody your Christianity better. But because we can't participate in what they were going through, yep. we have to, we're like at a, at a once removed or a twice removed distance. Yeah, he wasn't like, hey guys, um, you really need to get your incarnation and uh, theology correct. <laughs> he was saying, no, you guys, you meet... Everyone brings food and drink. You guys get shit-faced and full, and then the poor come, and there's nothing to eat or drink. What are you doing? Yeah, it seems like a lot of the time the church is focused more on 1 Corinthians 7-6. What does that say? Galatians 3-9. It's all about what the verses say, whereas, you know, Corinth Corinth was a place. There were people who struggled there. Uh, Galatia it was this region. Uh, if I, Somebody told me that if, if people actually understood just a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of history in the first century about these regions— then the letters would actually make a little bit more sense versus just trying yeah. to like quote scripture that really it's just like coming, you know, come out of the sky. It doesn't, it doesn't mean much to anybody. It's it shouldn't mean anything to you unless you actually know the context. So go back to context people. It's important. Then I also wanted to say that I thought it was great that you just wrote essentially in the first person. You're like, look, here's some stuff that I, have been learning about lately. What if you, what do you guys think about this stuff? It was kind of, maybe you guys have done this before at Brew Theology, but it was the first session that I came across where it wasn't like, here's a summary of someone else's ideas. You were like, this is what I'm, I mean, so appropriately enough for embodiment, this is what I've been doing. This is what I've been going through. This is exp- It's funny because I didn't realize that. And now it explains why I was so uncomfortable writing it. Because <laughs> it, it is a lot easier to hide behind somebody's work. Um, and I also, I want to give some information and also keep it vague enough that, that people could really bring themselves to the conversation and, and, um, I didn't want to lead them a certain way. So one of the quotes that you have here, it says how we value and honor our own bodies impacts how we value and honor the bodies of others. And who's the author? Sonia Renee Taylor. So those quotes at the end, uh, were, were placed by my editor. The amazing Janelle Apps Ramsey, who has a book, an editor out there. She's amazing. Thank and, you, guys. She, she has a book out. 
she's deserving of coin. So give her, give women her, give her the money first. Exper- uh, women experiencing faith. Yep. You can buy it wherever books at are Amazon. sold. Amazon. It is at Amazon. Which is a lot about embodiment. It, it is a lot about embodiment. Um, the women that I invited to participate in it were asked to share their experiences of what it means to be female and to have faith. And I would say for probably three quarters of those essays, it's about their femaleness in their bodies. How does this relate to my experience? And so I think you'd find it very much telling you how, how is this experienced in the world? Do you, do you feel like even speaking of the women who were part of that book process and yourself and then you men as well around here, do you think this, this quote is true to your own life? Do you find, do you find there to be something that resonates with you? about valuing your own body and how that impacts the way you value and you honor the bodies of other people? Or is that a scary quote to go down? I think it's hard to live out. Um, And for some of us, it's hard to live out if we don't have a lot of empathy. But for some of us that happen to be helpers, it's very hard to treat my body the way that I try to take care of other people and their bodies and their experience in the world. So it I think it can call out to us from both directions that how we live needs to be reflected in how we treat others, but also that how we treat others. I need to spend that time over here taking care of this body too. Yeah. People often say you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. The, the only rub I have against this kind of a quote is it creates that duality again. Whereas I go back to what Jason Whitehead said a couple of months ago when we had him talk at the open and relational extravaganza and he was like, there is no soul because what soul does is it, it creates a very self-centered you process. And I, and I understand what he meant by that, even though I want to argue for soul, because it, it does do that. It's about your personal soul, or in this case, your personal body. So if you're so focused upon your own body and your own soul, as humans are, we get very much just into ourselves. Um, and then, or as he says, the soul is the thing that's between the selves, uh, between the other, between whatever, whatever it is. It is, doesn't even have to be another human. I think her context would be some of this is about oppression. And so the way that we value and honor our bodies impacts how we, we value and honor the bodies of those that are oppressed. And so the way that that idea has kind of been emerging in me is, is the call to as a white privileged woman in America, are you putting your body on the line? Like the rest of us are, are you out there marching? Are you out there standing in the space and being willing to risk your body for taking care of others. That if you're not willing to do that, then, I mean, I think some of these activists would say, then you're not doing the work. You have to put your body out there. And that, that's been a new thing that I'm still trying to figure out. Is this the same person who says that making peace with your body is your mighty act of revolution? Mm-hmm. That's strong. So it's your it's your contribution to a changed planet where we might all live unapologetically in the bodies that we have. That's bold. I want to meet this person. Yeah, that's awesome. I this is a book I I didn't read, and they were that was the most frustrating thing. As I I'm writing this, I'm like I should have read this book. I should have. There's a there's a book that I had mentioned, and I know it's good, and I know it would fit so well with this, but I I didn't get a chance to read it, and it's I can't remember the author. But it's the book is called um, "The Body Keeps the Score," and it's how trauma is um, kind of held or stored in the body. Um, something I've been wanting to read. A lot of people have uh, recommended it. 
But yeah, this would have been another good one. The body is not an apology. The power of radical self-love by Sonia Renee Taylor. That was good, Janelle. Thanks for putting those at the end. I think what, um, what's so hard about, well, what's so tempting about the mind-body distinction is that it's very easy for us to, like, we intuitively know that much of our experience is immaterial, right? Like, the things that we see and smell and hear, those are, like, separate from the meaning that we overlay on top of them. And we know that that meaning that we overlay on top of them is where all of our value in life comes from. So we know in some sense that our, our best experience of the world is not tangible. But when we can see that it all traces back you know, through a long series of connections to some experience that we're actually having, right? You can't love a person which you can't experience, in, who you can't experience in some way that you can't see or hear or smell or touch. Like there wouldn't be a person there. So we love the immaterial person who's behind all of those things mm-hmm. somehow. But when we can see that that all of it comes from like, I mean, that's how I've been meditating on a lot of the, and not to say that this is the meaning, but that it's a meaning of the way that Jesus, Jesus is always talking about seeds, right? Talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. And, it, and he uses this metaphor in so many different ways. And I've been meditating on that, that, that the seed is like this thing that happens in your mind, this immaterial thing. But it, as it grows and flowers, it comes to fruition in all these in all these tiny ways, like like the leaves of a tree, all these little tiny expressions in the real world. And if it doesn't do that, if it you know if it um, withers under the sun and dies, then the seed doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't have an uh, a flowered experience in the real world, if it doesn't if it doesn't become a tree, then the seed you know this idea that's in my mind doesn't matter. It's like it has to become real has to become visible and expressed in the world in order for it to mean something. Well, and I think that's one of the barriers that we get into in our culture right now of, of making the other is that it's easy to make the other the object of our disdain when they're on the TV. But if you go down and go down to the homeless shelter and have lunch with them and interact with them, they're not just a problem of Denver. They are people who are trying to find their way in the world and are looking for people to journey with them. And that's just one example. Um, We have friends that we met at wild goose from define America that work on immigration issues. If you think you understand immigration issues, go meet some immigrant families and work on their behalf and play with their kids and start to understand those issues in that embodied way. Do y'all feel like this is where people get stuck in their faith, specifically in the West? Is it um, we do have these amazing thoughts? We might we may read these books that are just blowing our mind, and we want to talk to people about it. And let's just be honest: there is that most people don't really care about the books that you read unless they read them with you. But even then, that's hard to really have those, those conversations because we read them, you know, in the 
quietness of our own house or in our earbuds at the gym. So um, this is where faith actually literally dies is because they're great ideas, but we never, we never mm-hmm. go meet these kinds of people who are on the front lines. Right. And I, yeah, I, that's, I think that's probably why, well, going back to youth ministry, why a lot of teenagers quit doing the church God thing altogether because they grew up to be adults. That, well, they realized, okay, this is what an, an adult's supposed to be, and it's boring. Their faith was exciting, now it's not. I can't help but think that it comes back to the individualism. You know, again, going back to Pam <laughs> and, and Judaism, you know, Scripture was read in community. And it doesn't matter what text you're reading, it seems like you're, you're limiting the, the potential hidden within any text, whether it's, you know, this book that we, we mentioned by Sonia Renee Taylor or, or, or some sacred s- scripture. I think you you limit yourself or you, you know what I mean? You, you limit the fruits by keeping it maybe just yourself. Maybe there's some kind of mutual, maybe you can do more as, as a group than you can right. as an individual. And, um, and it's and it's also one thing that I was going to mention when you when you brought up this uh, immigration issue. Um, I f- I found that it's very hard for people to care about a very big thing like immigration mm-hmm. or racism, but it's a lot easier for them to care about one person's story. Yep, and I think that's the that's what's so important about meeting that flesh and blood person, that embodied story of you know the woman who fled Honduras with her child because drug cartels were recruiting children or you know young adults or teenagers to wage war for them and things like that she didn't want that for that future for her kids so she decides to span an entire country in hopes of a better life that is a lot easier to um relate to than you know 3000 5000 people on a caravan Coming right. from Mexico to the U.S., a lot of a lot of people I think in this country find it difficult to relate to that, even if they wanted to. And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are active in social justice, but if you're sure. looking for ways to make some of these connections, if that seems like a big hard thing to do, um, I mean, what what we've talked about many times is pick pick something. Because you can't work on them all. The Miguel de la Torre rule of yep. pick three things you give pick a shit th- about and, and do them. full asset. Yep. <laughs> and and for some of you, that may only, pick maybe one. you only have time for yeah, one. Just pick one. Yeah. And so like one thing, you know, if you, if you don't know where to start, you can go down to your local church and ask what they're working on. You can call CASA, which is Court, Ap- Court Appointed Special Advocates. They advocate for kids in the foster care system. You'll meet all kinds of kids from all kinds of situations, and you get to be the stable adults in their life. Um, they always need volunteers, and they're always there. Uh, Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Um, you can look up sanctuary churches in your city, and I guarantee you if you've got one, they need volunteers to come help. So there's lots of ways to get involved. And so whatever the thing is that kind of makes you interested and you want to get involved, search for that thing and make a phone call or send an email. I guarantee you that if you're asking to volunteer, someone's going to respond and invite you to come check it out. So, so please consider that. Big brother, big sister also can especially use male mentors because there's just a shortage 
you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about when you guys are talking is how, like, safeguarding our bodies from harm is one of the core, like, imperatives that your body imposes mm -hmm. on you, yep. right? And so from that perspective, it's understandable that people don't, we spend so much of our time trying to just get to a position where we actually feel safe from harm. Mm -hmm. It's it's very difficult to extend that um, that notion of needing to be protected to other people that, especially people that you don't know. So I have a tremendous I don't know if empathy is the right word, but understanding of why people, you know, especially people who haven't been exposed or lack imagination to what's going like to 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 think that you know, one person is fleeing Juarez because of drug violence is like, okay. But to think that 5,000 or 100,000 people are fleeing because of drug violence is like, that's so foreign to our experience yeah. that it's just hard to picture that it could really be the case that there's a place that's so horrible that everyone there that um, cares about their family is trying to get the hell out of there. So I, I have sympathy for that. But um, I think that, that that's one of the calls of Christianity is to extend to other people the same care that you have for yourself and, and even more so, right? Like, that's one of the things that's so missing, I think, from the national discourse and especially the, the Christian immersion in the national discourse is like, where, where do we see anyone pursuing the call to love their enemy? can barely love our neighbor like mexico is literally our neighbor right well, that's supposed to be the easy part we can't even love canada well we've got issues they're pretty much like us with funny accents yeah and nicer and marijuana <laughs> <laughs> well we're fine in colorado